0: I'm glad that y'all are here. Uh, this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're, we're doing a Q&A with the sixth graders who are in confirmation. I'm really glad that y'all are here. Uh, you look, look so much bigger up close uh, than, than when you stand uh, on Sunday mornings. Really glad that you're here. I hear you have some uh, good questions, uh, and I see that y'all are separated uh, by, by gender. Uh, <laughs> so um, so thrilled, to, thrilled to have y'all. If I don't like the question, I will ask who asked it. Um, so that I can single you out. I'm just kidding. Um, so uh, so let's have some fun, and, and let's see if uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't draw us a little bit closer to Him, okay? All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Your grace is sufficient for us, and uh, I need it now. And so, Lord, come quickly, uh, for Your arm is never too short to save. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds uh, to Your truth. And, Lord, uh, teach us... Um, uh, not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. So cast anxiety out of our hearts, and Lord, uh, give strength especially to our compromands as they stand before the church and they confirm their faith in you, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. I came, I came armed, just in case, so we're okay. All right, this is Sarah Siebels. Do you all know Sarah? Sarah is uh, one of the youth ministers on staff, grew up here at the Advent, and uh, turned out okay. And, uh, and so she is gonna be, uh, she's going to be our hostess, walking us through uh, and steering me in the right direction. Okay. Well, okay. I, and I have not seen any of these questions. Has, I,
1: can, yeah, I can confirm. But there's some great questions in here.
0: Um, the first one we
1: have, just so right
0: on top, is
1: why are there not many stories about Jesus' childhood?
0: Oh, why are there not many stories about Jesus' childhood? Okay. Well, actually, John's Gospel uh, does a really great job conveniently today of helping answer that question for us. Uh, If you were listening to the Gospel reading, uh, which Kathy read so well, does anybody, and and Canon Smalley quoted it uh, in his sermon this morning, does anybody remember what he said? All right, so this is how John's Gospel ends. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. (laughs) Uh, That's how John's Gospel ends, but before that, uh, earlier on uh, when he encounters Thomas, uh, John's Gospel says that these things are written so that you might know uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So um, we know that that Jesus uh, had a childhood, right? He was born in Bethlehem in a manger, and yet the whole thrust of the Gospels, are the message of salvation in Him. And as wonderful as the miracles are, John's Gospel doesn't actually use the word miracles to talk about Jesus walking on water or um, multiplying the loaves and fishes and feeding the people, but he uses the word signs. And what John is conveying to us and what Jesus wants us to see are the miraculous things that He did point to who He is. They're a sign that tell us who He is, what He's come to do. And so uh, I'm sure that there were some really wonderful uh, things that happened uh, in Jesus' childhood, uh, but, um, but we just don't know that much. There were some people early on, right after Jesus was raised from the dead, who tried to write some things about what happened in Jesus' childhood, but they, they made some stuff up. And so it's, when, you, when you take your historical Jesus class, when you're third years in college, uh, wherever you happen to be, uh, they 're going to start talking about the infant Gospel of Thomas and stuff like that, uh, but but those are just those are made up stories about Jesus uh, that we don 't know for sure. So in there we have a story that instead of climbing trees, uh, Jesus commanded the trees to bend over to him and he simply climbed in the top and then they went back up uh, there 's also a story about Jesus not getting along very well with the kids in the neighborhood in Nazareth, and so he um, he smote them <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, we, uh, But we do actually know a little bit about uh, what Jesus uh, was doing um, because um, there is a story of Jesus in the temple and Mary and Joseph have lost him. Uh, and he's gone off and he's actually teaching the scribes and the elders. And it says um, clearly his mom and dad were not very happy about that. And so after they found him, Uh, It says in Luke's gospel, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Well, which mother wouldn't? Uh, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So what we know about Jesus is that he was the perfect child, (laughs) literally uh, the perfect child. So that's what we know about Jesus' childhood and why we don't know that much. We know what we need to know, right? That's right. We don't necessarily need to know.
1: Um, next, very important. How do you get to heaven?
0: Turn right and go straight. Um, no, that's, not, that's actually not true. Um, um, one of the things that, um, that I think that we, we all encounter in life, no matter how old you are, is uh, what you find in life is it's really hard to, um, to make the grade, to make it happen. And I would probably say, this is probably not true of y'all, but sixth grade was the hardest year of, of my life. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It was really hard. Our school system went from fifth to sixth grade. And, uh, and so, of course it did. Uh, it went. I went to school in Virginia. Uh, uh, it went, but sixth grade was middle school for us. And whoever invented middle school, I would like to meet that person. They're probably not in heaven. But, um, <laughs> but we had sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And so I went from being in one classroom in fifth grade to having seven different seven different classrooms in middle school. And it was a hard adjustment for me academically, uh, socially, physically. It was hard, um, uh, you know. Growing up, I um, I was I was a pretty fat kid uh, growing up, and uh, and middle schoolers can be pretty pretty cruel. And uh, so it was really uh, hard for me, and uh, my home life was was fine, but uh, I was, I had to, uh, you, you might notice I'm a, I'm a little jokey, and my sense of humor comes from this, because growing up, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. So when my dad would take us on camping trips, he would, we'd be three days into the Blue Ridge Mountains, and there were bears there, and my dad would say, you don't need to run faster than the bear, you just need to run faster than Andrew. And um, <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I grew up. Um, so even in sixth grade, I, I just I felt like a, a total loss, and I would look at myself in the mirror and say, I wish I were different. Um, sometimes I would actually wish that I were somebody else that I knew. I said, I wish I were more like, well, I'll just say, I wish I were more like Ryan Clegg. That's what I wish it was more like. And um, and uh, I wish that people, people would like me. I'm not sure why they're mean to me. And so even at that age, I realized that uh, I was unhappy with who I was, but at the same time, I knew that people were being cruel to me. And so... Um, how do I get to a point where I'm I'm confident in my identity and who I am and okay with who I am, but at the same time knowing that there's still something about me that needs changing? I I wish I didn't say the things that I did. I wish that I didn't think the things that I did. And St. Paul had that same dilemma, and so St. Paul actually cries out in his letter to the Romans, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who's going to change me? Uh, Because I, I find myself really frustrated looking in the mirror and wishing that I were different. And so um, what Christianity offers is that, one, there's somebody who came to rescue you, right? Because you've all been in situations in life where you try really hard, but you just can't make it happen, right? That that you're stuck and and you you can't find a way out. And, um, you know, uh, when my dad retired... Uh, I would say, oh, well, you know, the golden years, and he retired when we were in high school, and, 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 and he said, Gold, he said, you're in the golden years. <laughs> you're in the golden years. Just live it up. And so uh, um, it, you're, you have a lot to look forward to uh, in the struggle of life. Uh, but in those situations where you can't get yourself out of the situation, what you need is somebody to come from the outside and, and to rescue you uh, from that from that place and that's what God has done. God looks down on us in our condition which is feeble and frail and says, "I've come to rescue you." And so in that the recipe, if you want to have a recipe, forget here's how you get to heaven. Uh, getting to heaven is not because of anything that you've done, uh, but because of what has been done for you. Right? And what it means is having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, actually being able to interact with the God of the universe in the same way that you interact with friends. And that's made possible because of Jesus, because of what he's done. And so uh, the first step, if there's a step, is, uh, and if you're thinking about these things, if you're contemplating, how do I get to heaven? I want to be with God. It means that God is already working in your life and you're safe. Uh, But also the first understanding of I'm undone. Something's not right. I need somebody to rescue me right? because of the sin that is enmeshed in me. And then, well, who's going to rescue me? I need to believe on Jesus. And there's a difference between believing on something and believing in something. So, uh, for instance, I um, when I go on 280 uh, down um, uh, down to... Uh, my in-laws live in Inverness, and I joke when I stay in the yard. I say, oh, I can see the lights of Montgomery from here. Uh, and so when I go across the Cahaba... There's a big difference between saying, I believe in that bridge that goes over the Cahaba River... Uh, But believing on the bridge means that I'm actually stepping out onto the bridge and I trust that it's not going to collapse and make me fall into the river. And so you're believing on Jesus. You're trusting in Him for your salvation to rescue from yourself, to rescue from sin and death so that when you die, you'll enter into perfect fellowship with God because of what Jesus has done. And then what happens by the power of the Holy Spirit is you enter into that relationship with God uh, and that relationship is, is, is there, and you speak to God through prayer. You read your Bible. Uh, he speaks to you, although he doesn't always speak audibly, although sometimes I wish that he would, uh, that you can feel his presence and, and know his presence because of the promises that he has made for you. And so the, that was a very long answer to an easy question. Um, but the short answer is, how do you get to heaven? You believe on Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's it. And even after you're a Christian, you're still going to look in the mirror and say, I wish I were somebody else. That's still going to happen. But when you do that, you remind yourself that you're a child of God, that you belong to Jesus, and He's never going to let you go. Never, no matter what.
1: Okay, on that note, and this is real, you can take a look. Um, They want to know, is Jesus, underline, your Andrew Pearson Savior?
0: Yes, um, he is. In spite of myself, Um, you know, I always look forward to uh, getting picked in dodgeball um, because I got. If it was regular old dodgeball, I got picked close to last. Uh, If it was pin dodge, I was toward the front because I could block the pin, uh, so I could make that happen. Uh, So God, you know, God got a hold of me when I was I was pretty young, um, and and I praise God for that. And so I've known since I was little, that, that I was a Christian. I couldn't always articulate it, but it, it is hard for me to think of a time when I was not actually a Christian.
1: Okay. Also importantly, what's your favorite food?
0: <laughs> All of it. Um, I mean, it would probably be easier for me just to talk about what I don't like. Uh, and th- there, there are a few things. Um, I, I really like... Um, all food, like especially if it has a high cholesterol content. It's, you know, um, Red Fox, uh, the famous comedian, um, had, had this great routine where he said, "You know, some of y'all uh, are on these diets—no fat, no butter, no sugar, no cholesterol. Y'all are gonna feel like a bunch of dummies lying in the hospital, dying of nothing." Um, uh, so I, uh, I kind of, I kind of feel that way.
1: Okay, not to totally change the subject, but um, is there s- such a sin so bad that you go to hell?
0: No, the Bible says that it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So that's probably what you've read in there that says um, that that's, that's the unforgivable sin, um, which really is just the sin of, um, of unbelief. Um, the only thing that will, will send you to hell is, is unbelief uh, in, in Jesus but let's uh, – is there another hell question so we can talk about hell for – They want to know where to. is hell? Um. Yeah, okay. Um, it depends on whether you root for Alabama or Auburn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, hell is a real place. Uh, it, you know, it's geographic location. Uh, we don't know except uh, most people don't want to go, right? If I was to ask people just out on 6th Avenue or 20th Street, do you want to go to hell? 100% of the people asked would say what? No, <laughs> right? That's not a supernatural he- uh, decision to not want to go to hell. Um, and yet, um, even though uh, hell has been uh, depicted as a place of, of torment and punishment, uh, which is what it is, but the more frightening thing, and you really understand this when you're, you only understand this when you're a Christian, is that it's where God isn't. It's where God isn't. And even if you're not a Christian, you still enjoy the grace of God at some level in the world in which you live, right? And so you're actually not completely separated from God. Even as, as a non-Christian, you've got some collateral grace that happens around you. And um, and so, uh, but hell is a place where God is completely and totally absent, which means there's absolutely no hope. It's it's complete and total uh, despair, and I think that we can catch a little glimpse of what hell is. That if you've ever been in an awful, terrible situation, and that feeling in the pit of your stomach, you know, where you just are completely like, "Whoa, I, I don't know what to do," and and you've got uh, multiply that times infinity, and that is the prolonged experience of hell, and uh, with absolutely just no no hope uh, in sight, and. Uh, but the, C.S. Lewis did a really good job in The Great Divorce, I think, of talking about, well, who's in hell, right? Who's in hell? And uh, hell is populated with, with people who want to be there, right? Um, who really actually do want to be there, people who want to who be their own boss, who want to make their own way, who want things the way. I, I think that uh, it's true that uh, we're going to find at the end of the day that heaven is overly populated with sinners. And hell is overly populated with the self-righteous. Uh, I think that's what the Bible, uh, what the Bible, shows us that those who, who are tired of going their own way and want to give themselves over to Jesus and allow Him to take control, uh, He takes them up into His arms. And if um, now this is a dangerous comment, but heaven is one big worship service, right? And, and I know for some of you're like, "Oh man, like already people are like i can 't believe confirmation is next Sunday and it 's going to take forever um, i 've already talked to the bishop we've we 've talked about sermon length and all that kind of stuff um, uh, but uh, and, and i 'll be honest, there are times when when worship even drags a little bit for me uh, i 've been in some services where I've thought, okay well praise the lord let's let 's move this along um, but uh, heaven is is the best possible worship experience. It's, it's being able to worship God completely unfettered where your heart and everything about you is now totally geared to wanting. To, uh, your only desire, the only thing that you want to do within your existence is is to worship God. And so it turns out in heaven you get to do whatever you want, but what you're going to want to do is worship God.
1: So what about the, um, the cartoon that we see with the devil and the pitchfork and all that? Is that totally right. made up?
0: Um, yeah, I, I mean, when you said that, all those great Far Side uh, cartoons uh, come to mind, like with the little double scene where up top it's got the devil with his pitchfork, and it's a, or the top has the angels with the in heaven, and it, it says, "Welcome to heaven. Here's your harp." And underneath it has the devil with the pitchfork, says, "Welcome to hell. Here's your accordion." Um, and so uh, it, I'm thinking about that. But um, we uh, actually, the Bible depicts Satan as very beautiful. But he's actually very beautiful. Uh, he was an angel in heaven who rebelled against God, and he and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven. Uh, and um, so he's a real, a real being. He's not a human. He's not a human, uh, but he's a fallen angel, which means that he has great power. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that Satan is God's equal. God has no equal. All right. God is omnipotent, which means that he is... Stronger than anything. He has full power. Every power. He's more powerful than anything. Like he has so much power that you can't even say he has power because it's even beyond that. Satan does not. Is not omnipotent. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Satan does not know everything. Uh, God is omnipresent. God can be everywhere at once. Satan cannot be everywhere at once. But Satan certainly has his dominions. We see that in the New Testament uh, where, where we have people who are demon possessed and things like that. Um, and so Satan is alive, and he's active, and he's at work. And uh, again, C.S. Lewis. And I'm not the biggest C.S. Lewis fan, but he seems to be coming up recently. I like him just fine, but uh, I don't quote him often. But in the Screw Tape Letters, uh, which is a, a correspondence between uh, two demons, uh, the devil. I think it's the it is the devil. Is it de- the devil mm-hmm. and his and his little minion? It's um, he says the best thing that you can do, you know that you're being effective if you convince your prey that Satan doesn't exist. All right, if, if we go through life thinking that Satan doesn't exist, uh, that puts him in a very powerful position. But if you name something what it is, there's power in that. And knowing that Satan is real, but greater is the one uh, who has come into the world, who is Jesus Christ, and he has no equal. And, and there will come a day where Satan will be totally thrown down. And he will be no more.
1: And because this is a question, just to make this extra clear, um, the question also was, when God made the world, did he make the devil? Or was he already there like he was? So God right. made
0: them. No, Satan was already uh, was already there. Um, uh, the angels had already been created. And um, and uh, and then God uh, created the heavens and the earth and the animals and, and Adam and Eve and all that. Um So he was, because you remember in the Garden of of Eden, Satan was tempting um, Eve. So he was already on the scene at that point in time.
1: Um, The next question is, what's the weirdest date you've taken your wife on?
0: (laughs) I still got a lot of time left. Um, um, I don't know, Lauren, are you still, I think she had to go to a baptism thing. Um, The weirdest date? Oh, uh, that's, I, but for us it wasn't weird, for, but when we tell it, people think that's weird. There's this right, I mean, get ready for a really yuppie story. Ready right? like this one time when we were in Paris. Um, uh, there's this great restaurant in, in Paris called uh, 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 Les Refuges des Fondue, and it's a fondue restaurant and has all these long tables with benches and sort of everyone sits together, and um, it's a big, big time, and they serve their wine in baby bottles. You got it, get it's, it's pretty, it, I won't talk about the physics of it all, but it's, it's pretty, it's a, it's a lot of fun, but it's a little bit, you have to sort of leave your Freudian hang-ups at home and, uh, and go, but it's, it's up by Montmartre um, within walking distance, and so you kind of go there, and then you walk singing through the streets up to the, the pretty basilica up there.
1: Uh, thank, that was, thank you. Um, <laughs> so that was pretty weird, right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty weird. I'll say that's pretty weird. Um, <laughs> it's hard because there are these questions mixed in with questions like, um, "Where do all the dead people go before Jesus died on the cross?"
0: Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good that's question. A good question. Um, uh, they went to. Um, God, this was just in Christianity Today, and it really got me thinking. And I thought I knew what I was talking about until I read that article. Um, the idea in the Old Testament is that when you die, you went to a place called Sheol. Okay, you'll, you'll read that sometimes when you're, when you're just at home reading the, New, the Old Testament. And it was a place of the dead. It was sort of a holding place. Not really much of anything happened. And um, do you know that when we say the creed, we say that he descended to the dead. Um, what that means is he descended to Sheol and he ransomed. He went and he ransomed the righteous there in Sheol and, and took them there. But at the same time, um, we also know that from the Old Testament, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so um, uh, the con I, I don't see that there's a there's a dichotomy and concept between. The, I don't. When people say, "Well, there's a New Testament idea of heaven and an Old Testament idea of heaven," I don't think that that's true. They're they're one in the same. And even the uh, the co- the concept that we have of the, of the heaven in the New Testament is is often um, uh, not grasped rightly. So when Jesus tells his disciples, uh, I go to prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house there are many mansions. Um, Actually, the Greek word used there is way station, that it's like a way station. Uh, Because ultimately what God is going to do is that when Jesus comes back, and he's coming back, when he comes back, he's going to take the world in which we live in right now and make it new right? Everything that is broken down and old, he's going to remake, and it's going to be a perfect earth, a new heaven and a new earth, right? That's the promise, which means when we die and go to heaven, that heaven is actually just a way station until we live in this new heaven, in this new earth, the new Jerusalem here on earth.
1: So is there such a thing as purgatory?
0: No, there's not. Uh, let's talk about purgatory for a minute. Um, purgatory is, is a place uh, that the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, still talks about, uh, and and the medieval church believed and developed, and that is that, the idea is that when you die, nobody really goes straight to heaven. You you still have some dirt on you. You still have some sin that you need to knock off, and so you go to this place called purgatory, which is like uh, physical therapy, but spiritually speaking, <laughs> and and you work it out. And then when you're all set to go, and they give you the all clear, they they send you. Uh, I mean, it's like a spiritual DMV. I, it's not fun. You don't want to go there. Um, it's, if you ever want to know what it might be like, go to the, go to the DMV line at the courthouse. You know, if you need to get your car registered, go over there. It feels like that. Um, but uh, the, Bible, the Bible doesn't teach that there's any such place. In, in fact, what it teaches, and I just quoted, uh, is that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and uh, if you've believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, when you die, you will be with the Lord. Do not pass go. Do not collect. Go straight. You go straight there. You're in the bosom of Abraham immediately, uh, for sure. So uh, for those of you that are worried about purgatory, you're worried about nothing. I know that's easier said than done, but but trust in Jesus. He's going to pull you through.
1: So we've been asked, does it take longer than one day for your soul to go to heaven?
0: Um did y'all watch like Touched by an Angel for confirmation this year or what's going on here? I'm just kidding. Um, I think
1: I think it's a Heaven for Real movie. They, they they also want to know, do you believe in that book? But
0: Oh gosh. Well I can I can admit ignorance. I haven't I haven't read it yet. Um but um, what I would say is that um when when you die you you you're with the Lord, right? You don't you don't sort of hang out for a little while and um and um, I mean, I, I know that there might be, I'm trying to think biblically, um, and that's the other thing. When people ask for an example, always go to the Bible for your example initially, uh, and if there's not one, just make one up. So um, <laughs> biblically, I, it's, I just can't find any evidence that there's any sense that, that, that the soul lingers. There was for the longest time an idea that the soul did linger a little bit, and that's why Jesus himself lingered before he went to the tomb of Lazarus. So that nobody could say, well, he might have kind of still been a little bit uh, alive. Uh, but uh, when you have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, he's he's dead, which makes me feel really bad for him because you know it's hard enough to have to die once, uh, but poor Lazarus had to come back and do it again. Um, so uh, uh, that is a que- that's a question I like to ask Jesus. You know, there's Lazarus enjoying fellowship with God, and God says, I've got some really bad news for you. Uh, you're going back. Um, do we get wings? Do get we, get, we don't get wings. Um, uh, we, you won't need wings. You won't, I, mean, it, I mean, one of the things that you see in, in uh, so this is much, this is better than wings. Because, you know, wings you have to manicure, you've got to keep them up, and no one wants to take care of wings. Um, you get feathers all over the place. It's, it's, it's for the birds. <laughs> um, so, remember when uh, we, we hear this, we heard it today in today's Gospels, when Jesus was raised from the dead, um, he, he's not bound by any natural law. right? So, uh, we know that the disciples were stuck in a room and the doors were locked, but how did Jesus get into the room? He walked through. He walked through. Which means... In your resurrected body, you would be able to walk through through walls if that were the case. But you won't need to.
1: Great. Um, in the Apostles' Creed, it says Jesus descended into hell. How did yeah. that happen?
0: How did that? Ask him. Um, yeah, I hit on this a little bit. Um, the whole idea of. Um, it was inserted into the creed in the article that I read, which I commend to you. I'm pretty sure it was Christianity Today. It might have been Christian Century, talking about that clause there and whether or not um, coming up with biblical arguments uh, for it. Um, the idea that Jesus went and to the place of the dead and preached to to the to those from the Old Testament, um, but again. Uh, uh, I don't think that it's a harmful statement um, because Jesus did die, right? Jesus did die and because he had taken upon himself. Uh, he, he, had, he, he didn't go to heaven. He didn't go to heaven in his death, but he went someplace. And I think that that's an attempt by the church to try to explain that, which we don't know. But it's, it's, a, good, it's a good guess.
1: Okay, to change gears, what was your confirmation like?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it, we, it was a mixed bag. Um, you know, a lot of us were being confirmed because it, sh- it was sort of like a bar mitzvah for a Gentile. You it just came of age, and that's just what you did. Um, and, uh, but I did have one guy in my, in my class who's, who told the rector, I don't believe in all this malarkey. And uh, the rector said, you shouldn't be confirmed. And uh, now he had to answer to his parents, but, um, but it was the right thing. And now he's a, an ordained minister. So, uh, it, it, God bless him. Uh, so it worked, um, but I'm trying to think. It, uh, Peter Lee was the bishop of Virginia. He'd been the bishop uh, since Moses, um, and and then was still bishop uh, almost 20 years after I was confirmed. Um, so uh, I, it was, it was. I mean, it was neat because you know the bishop comes in, and he lays his hands on you. In Virginia, it's pretty simple. We we kind of breeze through it and he just puts his hand on your head, and you kind of move on. I didn't feel like uh, the bishop was on, like, on fire, uh, and, like, and I didn't really feel like his hands were that heavy. Uh, but um, I will say that Trent Small, who was four people down from me on the rail, after the bishop confirmed him, he threw up uh, at the <laughs> communion rail. So that's, that's what my confirmation was like.
1: Did you ever doubt that
0: you wanted to be confirmed? Um. I mean, the, ser- the questions are serious, right? The whole idea of confirmation, and our church has got it all wrong. Our church has got it all wrong, and that's because in the Episcopal Church, we like to do things, we like to do things, and then try to think up a theology. And even if we get that far, normally we don't. Uh, and so we've been so oriented toward baptism that confirmation has gotten lost. And so what you're doing, uh, and why the bishop is there, is not because the bishop has magical powers or anything like that, but the bishop represents the church, right? He's he's a bishop in the church and he goes all over the diocese and he's there representing the church and what you're doing is you're confirming your faith in the Lord Jesus. You're taking upon yourself the vows that your parents and godparents made at, at your baptism. So it's sort of a, like it's one big process that just took 13 years almost. And, um, and so it was... In my in my church, it was a really big deal uh, because you were standing up and you were confirming your faith in the Lord Jesus. And a lot of people will say, oh, "I was confirmed Episcopalian," or "I was confirmed this, that, or the other." Uh, the Episcopal Church or any denomination is not mentioned once in the service. You're confirming your faith as a Christian, right? That's the day where you say, "I'm taking." And that, I guess this is the big thing: is that there comes a point in all of our walks with the Lord that you have to appropriate this faith as your own right it has to be yours it has to be your personal faith in jesus not your parents not the rector's, not anybody's but but it's about you and and the lord and so the heaviness i think of that sat on me um but it was good because it was it, that was the reality of the situation that's what it was really about
1: so you may not have totally doubted your confirmation but have you ever had moments where you question god
0: oh all the and time and is that yeah. okay yeah, all the time. Um, I, it, it, making sense of the world is, is really hard. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, that's why God came into the world, because the world doesn't make sense, and this is not the way that things are supposed to be. right? God sees them and, and realizes a change needs to happen, and that's why Jesus comes in order to affect and make that change. And so there are a lot of times in my life where I... I don't. A lot of my prayer life is, God, I have no idea what you're doing, but I'm going to have to trust you in this. Or I am going to trust you in this because you're the only one I can trust in this. Uh, Paul Walker, who used to be on staff here, once emailed me, and I decided to be honest. He emailed me and said, how's life? And I emailed him back and I said, life is terrible, which means the Lord must be working. <laughs> um, and that's true. So just, I guess, in those tough times, I have to remind myself that, It's not that God is only, you know, when things are going really well, it feels like God is very close. And when things are not going very well, it seems like God is very far away. But in fact, uh, God may be even nearer to you when things are bad. He's as close as He's ever been. So if God feels very far away, He's not, right? Because just like if, if, if God's proximity to me was based on how I felt, I'd be in a whole heap of trouble, but thankfully, God, I don't, I don't get to dictate to God how close He is. He determines that, and He never lets me go.
1: Okay, so you're touching on a side effect, but just to nail it right on, mm-hmm. um, why does God let bad things happen?
0: Yeah, why does like Yeah, I mean, I mean, the world in which we live in, because it's broken and fallen down, bad, bad things happen. Um, it's the effect of sin in the world. Because when, right, when, at, you know, the story, what happened in the Garden of Eden? What happened? That's right. Uh, the Lord God said, do not, you can eat of any other tree, just don't eat of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what they did. And so they fell. And when they fell, Paul talks about this in Romans, not only is the human race subject to corruption, the world around us is subject to corruption. Right? It's, it's all fallen down. So why do we have tornadoes? Sin. Why do we have hurricanes? Sin. Why are there earthquakes? Sin. Why is there war? Sin. Why is there famine? Sin. Why is there poverty? Sin. Why, why do bad things happen? It's because of sin, and God looks at the world and says, this is not the way that things are supposed to be, and so I'm sending a rescue mission to you in Jesus Christ. Right. So um, it, it's a product of being broken down. There are people that will probably try to tell you that, well, bad things happen to people because they deserve it. That is holy. Untrue. Jesus was once asked about that. There was a man who was born blind, and they asked Jesus, "Who sinned, him or his parents?" And Jesus said, "No, nobody. Nobody sinned. This is just a product of the brokenness of life that things like this happen. But know this: that there's coming a day where God will set all things to right. And and even in our broken, it's in our brokenness that we're actually able to point to God's work." And, and, and to God's glory. And I'm not one of those guys that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade because that's just a ridiculous thing to say and even to believe sometimes. And so in the midst of really hard moments um, when, when the bottom seems to have fallen out, um, and it's very interesting because I, I've seen people who have gone through really bad things in life, and some people uh, come out the other side and say, I don't feel like I can be a Christian because this bad thing has happened. And then someone go through a remarkably similar situation and yet come out on the other side and say, I'm putting my faith and trust more in Jesus uh, than, than I ever have. And um, I think that that has to do with the notion of, of what, what kind of God does the Bible talk about? Does he talk about a God who is, is out to get you, is out to punish you, is out to, if you misbehave, is going to do bad things in your life? No, the Bible uh, shows us that what God's property is is to always have mercy. And even in those things that look really bad, uh, God works all things out for the good uh, for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And so sometimes that's realized here on earth. We're actually able to see God working out that good, uh, but sometimes we're not going to probably be able to see it until we actually get to heaven. And, And we're able to finally look back and from God's point of view, and say, "Okay, um, I understand why that happened." Although it's not going to be any easier, it's still really hard.
1: So, in the midst of that, when it's really hard, um, and if you're scared and sad, and have lost your faith, will God help you turn to Him?
0: Yes, um, I, I, I think I think that He does. Um, the um, you know, I, um, I I I don't want to. Well, I'll just speak for my own uh, situation. I um, Similar situation, lady in, in our former congregation uh, had melanoma and it metastasized. And if you know anything about melanoma, it metastasizes, it's pretty much it, right? Um, it, it's, not a, it's not a good thing. It's a, it's a bad cancer to have. And, um, and um, she, uh, she was very much um, of the opinion that um, I, I go to church every Sunday, uh, I give to the church. Why would God allow this to happen to me? Uh, and um, and I, I couldn't help but hear her saying, I deserve a lot better. I deserve a lot better. And, um, and in my heart, uh, there's a little bit of self-righteousness because I said, you know, I, I don't deserve to have what, what I have. And literally two weeks later, I was diagnosed with melanoma. <laughs> And, um, and and then I could actually speak to that woman. From uh, Lauren was about seven months pregnant with her first child, and, um, and they rushed us up to MUSC. Uh, I, I still laugh. Our dermatologist, is, uh, she said, well, once she, she was taking pictures of, of me with my shirt off, and I said, I just want you to know you're the only woman who's ever wanted to take a picture of me with my shirt off. <laughs> um, she didn't laugh, uh, nor do I think it was the first time she'd ever heard that joke. Uh, but, um, uh, I mean, it, 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 of course, turned out fine. I mean, I look like... Nanook of the North when I go to the beach now. But um, uh, um, it, it's, I mean, in the midst of that, uh, really trusting in the Lord, but knowing um, I, I, I don't deserve the blessings that I have in this life. So that's the perspective, I think, of a Christian. It's not God owes me this. But even when bad things happen, you know that God is in control and that everything's going to be all right. And there was a strange sense of peace even in that situation even though Lauren was very pregnant with our first child, um, I didn't want to die, if, but if it came to that, uh, but but I knew that everything would be okay. I knew that everything would be okay because, um, because Jesus is who he said he was, and he was raised from the dead, and he's alive.
1: Okay, great. So in the midst of that pain, though, why has Jesus not come yet?
0: Right. Um, I, I, mercy. <laughs> I mean, that's the irony that he sees the world in the shape it's in. It would be really great if he just came back and, and made it all well. But uh, in his mercy, he uh, he he doesn't come back for that great and terrible, not terrible in the bad sense, but sort of all uh, striking day um, to give more and more people the opportunity to hear and trust in him. Um, that, that God allows the world to continue to turn uh, because of his great love for his people, and that the gospel would be preached to the very ends of the earth. Although I pray, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I've been with you, like I've walked into Algebra 1 and said, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right, <laughs> or on that test day. I've been there. Um, and uh, so uh, that's not going to change at all. There are, there are definitely days where I think, uh, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. Um, but and a lot of people will speculate, well, you know, can you tell when Jesus is coming back soon? Uh, the world has been in a whole heap of trouble for a very long time. And so uh, I know that with these four blood moons that we had, there were all kinds of people. There's a guy in San Antonio that said this is proof that Jesus is coming back soon. And what I would say is don't bet the farm on that one. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, our heart should always long and be ready for him to come back. So if Lauren comes and says, hey, Jesus just came back today, I'd say, well, shocked but not surprised. Um, that's kind of the disposition, I think.
1: Well, we, it looks like we still have a little time. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to hit back on some of the other questions that maybe. be. Okay. Um, are the robes you wear comfortable?
0: No. Um, and let me tell you, that, let's talk about my vanity for a minute. Um, <laughs> I have a very fat face. I've been able to lose weight in the rest of my body. But how do you lose weight in your cheeks? And uh, and so because I wear what make it's so fluffy and marshmallowy that when people see me in public they say oh I didn't realize you were you were as thin as you are and uh, that's not a compliment. <laughs> so it's uh, they're they're a little bit hot, uh, they're a little bit hot. But you know the reason why we wear them is because it uh, well there are a couple reasons one is theological and one is ecclesiological, one is that uh, and one is tradition just that's what Anglican clergy used to wear have always worn. Uh, basically since the late 1500s. And, uh, and really what it was meant is to um, to differentiate. One is to so people know who you are, but at the same time it's, it's not like a lot of other churches where you don't wear robes, and so you, you actually have to think a little bit about what you wear. And, and, I, and I'm like that guy. If I go to a church and the minister's up there and he's wearing a suit and tie, I'm judging it. Like I'm judging like that is a terrible tie, or uh, or you know his suit is really ill cut, uh, or or worse, he looks really good, <laughs> right, right. So uh, so wearing the vestments that we wear uh, keeps us from that, right? You can't you can't see any. I mean, it, it's sort of a of a great uh, leveler, and uh, which is really good because it used to be Episcopal clergy dressed really well. We used to get a 15% discount at Brooks Brothers. That's not the case anymore. Um, but uh, I don't know what happened in the 70s, uh, but we're terrible dressers now. Uh, we're really bad dressers. So thank God for the vestments on Sunday. The other reason is it's theological in that um, we wear purple, what's called a cassock here, but um, most other places wear a black cassock. And the whole idea of wearing something um, – uh, but actually you can – you can make the, from Isaiah, though their sins are like scarlet, right? So you have the, your sinful self represented by the black or the dark cassock uh, and the white surplus. You're putting on the righteousness of Christ that is covering your actual self. So you're putting on the garment of Christ. And so you're, even though <laughs> underneath uh, you're, you're sinful, uh, God sees you as, as dazzling and is pure and is perfect in and, and a surplus. You can try them on sometime. You're welcome to it.
1: So what made you want to become a priest? The perks. Um,
0: <laughs> there, there are very few. Look, I tried to, I, y'all know the story. I mean, it, I wear my collar to traffic court. I'd wear a nun's habit if I thought it would work. I still get the. Um,
1: and they wanted to, specifically, an Episcopal priest. Yeah. Um, like oh the difference gosh. between other
0: denominations. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the tradition. We had a little Methodist stint for a while because uh, there really wasn't a, 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 an Episcopal church that, that I could get to uh, when I was uh, basically fifth through tenth grade. But um, g- God just spoke. I mean, I preached yesterday at the Diocesan Acolyte Festival and, um, and I talked about um, calling. And I said, I, I said, There are three callings that God probably has in your life one is assumed, one is probable and one, uh, or possible, and one is most definite. Uh, And I said, I assume you're here because you're called to be an acolyte. Pretty safe bet. Uh, If you're at a diocesan acolyte festival on a Saturday and you're not called called to be an acolyte, I don't know what that makes you. Um, But then uh, it may be possible that God is calling you to be an ordained minister. Um, And I was an acolyte as a kid, and that um, really kind of got me thinking about that. Um, and so God worked through the accolading ministry. And the third calling that I said was most definitely realized is that God called them to be uh, a Christian. And so I talked about what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus because out of your relationship with Jesus springs every other calling that you have in life. And I mean every calling, like the calling you have as a son or daughter, a sister, a brother, a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, what you do in your vocation. Uh, but what I want to say to you is that No matter what God has called you to do in your life, you're called to ministry, right? You're called to exhibit the gospel in both word and deed, in both word and deed, uh, to the world, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, uh, a farmer, uh, no matter what you do, uh, and your job in the kingdom of God is just as important as mine is. My job's just very different, uh, as you know, um, and um, and uh, so I didn't, I didn't, you know, I don't know if you all know, these are plastic. Like, when I grew up, I wouldn't wear plastic around my neck. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not very comfortable. Uh, but for me, at a young age, um, being a Christian, and I really felt that, that God uh, was calling me to ordain ministry, and someone very wisely said, if you can do anything other than, than that, then just go do it. But if you're if you're like the prophet who said it's like a burning in my bones that I, I, I can't keep down. And I was about 15 years old when I knew for sure that God was calling me to the ordained ministry, right? Which, you know, pretty much torpedoed my dating career in high school and college. <laughs> and, um, and so when I got to college, I had lots of girl well, I didn't have lots of girlfriends that came out the wrong way. Uh, but I had I had girlfriends who said, you know, why don't you? Why don't you take the LSATs? And I just give it a try. Or why don't you... And I did. I took the LSATs. I did pretty well. And then uh, I took the Foreign Service exam just because I like geography. And um, I even in college got my um, my international courier license. You know, the guy that has the briefcase cuffed. I thought that would be exotic. And I did one trip um, to uh, Morocco, and I'll never do it again. So... Um, but I, I knew that that... that I could. It was always. I was always being pushed back to that. I, I couldn't get away from it. And that. And and I. I think that, that that should be our calling, regardless of of what we do.
1: Okay, great. And I saved one good last one. Yeah. Okay. That I hear a lot, even with the um, junior and the senior high. Why do we say prayers out loud when God knows what we're thinking?
0: Yeah, okay. In the next thirty seconds. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, because God That's wants again. us to. Ex- God wants us to express to Him what is in our heart, because what our heart will try to do, it can't do it in private, right? Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Um, We can't do it privately, but publicly we try to hide what's really going on in our heart when we talk to God, I mean, and other people uh, to be sure. And so uh, there's nothing more nerve-wracking for a lot of Christians than to pray in public, right? You start you, you think, what am I going to say? I've got to make sure it's extra holy and good and you know, don't, don't forget this thing and don't forget that thing. And, and you begin to formulate it in your head rather than actually speaking out of your heart at, and allowing God to speak through you. And so um, you know, when, um, when people ask, well, what can I pray for you about? Very rarely will I say really what's going on in, in my life. And so publicly what I'll say to God is, and this is, this is me being generic, but I'll say, um, dear Lord, uh, make me uh, a better witness to your grace. Um, help me to be um, a, a, a more faithful Christian to my friends, and those are all very good prayers. But really, what's going on in my heart is, uh, God, I'm a, I'm a terrible husband, <laughs> uh, and and I I need you to to break into this. My marriage is on the rocks, or or God, my my child uh, is way off the rails, and and I just don't know what else. What else to do? God knows that that's our prayer on our hearts, but there's something therapeutic and supernatural that happens when we actually speak that to God. It's like a release. when you're act- I mean, have you ever had something balled up and it might not be that significant, but it's significant to you where just to actually get it out there and to express it to, to somebody, it's this huge burden and weight taken off your shoulders because you know that you're not bearing it alone. So that's why God knows us so well That's why He wants us to express our prayers to Him. Because He knows what's going on in our hearts. There's nothing that we can hide. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so because of that, what God wants is He wants us to articulate those things that we're really struggling. Even if it's like, God, I really, you know, I'm just trying to think. In sixth grade, I says, uh, Lord, I I really uh, have a crush on Amy Hume. And uh, she sits two rows away from... This is true, actually. Sits two, rows, two desks away from me in Miss Smith's class, and she's a total distraction, and I just become completely unglued, and I feel like a complete and total dork. Uh, Lord, help me get it together. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty honest prayer. Or, uh, or, God, you know, I know that uh, uh, Lucas Berg is a really bad influence on me, and yet uh, I continue to succumb to his, uh, uh, to his lure and uh, <clears throat> I'm going to get in big trouble unless I get away from him. But God, I just don't know how, and I'm afraid people will think I'm a total dork if I don't hang out with Lucas Berg. Right? It's amazing. I mean, sixth grade really did a number on me. Um, uh, Lucas is in jail now. Just kidding. He's not. He's not, he's not um, he sells insurance because um, <laughs> he knows it well. So, um, so that's, that's why God wants us to articulate uh, one reason why God wants us to articulate our prayers to him. Hey, thank you. Well so. and
1: thank y'all for yeah, your questions. Good questions. Um I know I can say that I'm I feel honored to be a part of a church with all of y'all. I mean that y'all have been such a special class. Looking forward to confirmation. And if you have any lingering questions, I'm sure Andrew has office hours following this service.
0: No, absolutely, not after the service, but yeah, you can you can call my office. I'll, I'll tell you I'm always up for what's what's a good lunch day at, at Mount Brook Junior High? No, y'all aren't there yet. Y'all aren't there yet. Oh, man. Oh, man. We'll just go to Billy's. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that you would instill in these confirmands a steadfast faith in you, and no matter uh, where they are in life, Lord, hold fast to them, that you would protect them, uh, that they would never get too far away from the shadow of your cross, and, Lord, that their hymn would forever be, beneath the cross of Jesus. I pray for them. I pray for their futures, your calling on their lives, that they would have their eyes and ears and heart open to what you would have them do in life, Lord. I pray uh, for their future husbands and wives. I pray for their children. And Lord, that you would uh, ransom them and that you would give them a godly heritage. Amen. What did y'all do to me?